This podcast is brought to you by A. Miller George Funeral Home, where each life is celebrated, and their sister company, Cremation London Middlesex, both family-owned and operated, by the Diocese of Huron, a community where families and individuals from Windsor to Owen Sound, Grand Bend to Port Rowan, come together to worship and serve, and by Molly Maid. Make your home a healthy haven. Call Molly Maid London today. Andrew Whitehead is an Associate Professor of Sociology and Director of the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion and American Culture. His new book is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. Andrew is the latest guest on The Vicar's Crossing. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever and wherever you may be listening. Welcome back to another edition of the Vickers Crossing podcast. The Vickers Crossing is a virtual space where faith intersects with the public square. And your Vickers are back. Happy to be here with you. My name is Rob Henderson, and I serve as the priest at Holy Trinity St. Stephen's in London, Ontario. My name is Kevin George, and I'm a priest at St. Aidan's Anglican Church, also in London, Ontario. All right, Kevin, we've got our fourth episode recording today, season nine of The Vicar's Crossing, and wonderful guest today. Been mm-hmm. very uh, looking forward to chatting with this gentleman who wrote this wonderful book right here, which we're going to yep. talk about, American Idolatry. Yep. And today we're welcoming a foremost scholar Christ- of Christian nationalism in the United States, and uh, he knows his stuff, Andrew Whitehead. Mm-hmm. Andrew is an associate professor of sociology and director of the Association of Religion Data Archives at the Center for the Study of Religion. Religion and American culture. Yeah, geez. Are you card. tired now? Can I, you want a drink? You get you a drink after that. <laughs> That's right. Um, Andrew's research on Christian nationalism has been featured across several national outlets, including the New York Times, NPR, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, CNN Today, The Economist, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian. Mm. He has been interviewed on NBC News, National Public Radio, and the BBC, among others, mm. and is routinely contacted for his perspectives on religion and politics uh, from national and international news media. He has also written for the Washington Post, Time, NBC News, and the Religious Religion News Service, among others. And today on his resume, he will pad that with an appearance on the Vickers Crossing podcast, His new book is American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. I hope, and on his bio, the first thing, before the New York Times, it says, guest on the Vickers Crossing. We'll see. Mm, We'll see. Uh, In the meantime, we want to acknowledge uh, that the lands upon which we record this podcast are the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Lenapeawak, and Attawandaram peoples. We are on lands connected with the London Township and Sombre Treaties of 1796 and a dish with one spoon covenant wampum. These lands continue to be home to diverse indigenous peoples whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land and vital contributors of our society. And now knowing the ways in which many of us have benefited from the injustices of the past, we encourage us all to consider ways that we can take ownership of our part in that and work towards reconciliation. Mm-hmm. 
I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors to A. Miller George Funeral Home, where each life is celebrated, and their sister company, Cremation London Middlesex, both family-owned and operated. Our thanks go out to Dave Mullen and the staff at A. Miller George for all their great support. Amen to Dave. Uh, we also are thankful to the Diocese of Huron, a place with which we're familiar because we both work for the Diocese of Huron, mm -hmm. uh, where families and individuals from Windsor to Owen Sound, from Grand Bend to Port Rowan, come together to worship and to serve. And we send out our thanks to the Right Reverend Todd Townsend, our bishop. And our uh, friends at Molly Maid, thank you for sticking with us over the last little while. Make your home a healthy haven. Call Molly Maid London today. Many thanks to Tricia Listar and, uh, for supporting us. And uh, make sure you call Molly Maid. Now, Rob, uh, since we last talked, uh, I had some news. Oh, okay. Did you, you probably heard. I, I did read something. Yeah, there was some stuff out there. There was some stuff. So I should yeah. probably just say to people yeah, that um, uh, on Sunday, it was announced that I have accepted uh, an appointment to the position of uh, Dean of the Diocese of Huron, a rector of St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, so I will be concluding my ministry here at St. Aidan's at the end of 2023, December 31st, and starting at the cathedral on January 1st. So changes in the air. So then we're mm. gonna have, I'm going to have to start saying that I'm uh, now from the cathedral instead of from St. Aidan's. So I have a lot That's of right. a lot, lot of mixed feelings, a lot of uh, you know uh, excitement about possibilities, but obviously a, a lot of heartbreak about uh, leaving an incredibly good place here at St. Aidan's. Absolutely. Congratulations. And uh, I know you're looking forward to, to something new, but it is a difficult thing to have to step away to. And, um, but, uh, no, happy for you. Congratulations, my Thank friend. Thank you, buddy. You've been a great support in all of it too. And I think, I think the thing is that I want to get across to people is, you know, cause there's a lot of temptation for people to buy into the seduction of, of, uh, sort of the foolishness around power and upward mobility and that sort of foolishness in the church. For me, I don't see this as advancement or in any ways being moving up or anything. It's every parish is worthy of a good leader. Um, and uh, St. Paul's is in need of that right now. And I hope I can uh, faithfully provide it. Uh, and St. Aidan's uh, also deserves a good leader. And I pray that they will find the next person. But I'm certainly not going to a better place. And I'm certainly not being promoted. I'm shifting parishes. That's right. That's right. Good. So, good. Well, thank you for 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 mentioning that, and uh, look forward to seeing what's to come. It'll be yeah, good. yeah. And by the way, um, we're e we're even on beers, aren't we? I think we are now. Yeah, I think I lost the last bet from last week, so yeah. We'll have to so the score. we can just wait for sixteen or eighteen weeks. How long is this? Let's see how it plays season? out. And see, we could be yeah, yeah. like I might be up fourteen to four or something. And <laughs> so, for those who are wondering, we're talking about the Lions, and so and so we bet the first week. I bet that the Lions were going to win in more than seven. They didn't. Rob said in in about three, less than three, and he was right. Yeah. And then last week, I said more than seven again because it was Green yeah. Bay, and Rob was like, "Oh no, no, I like the new, I like love the new quarterback." So yeah. he said, yeah. "So and they and it was a blowout after the first half." Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I lost that one. So what's going to happen but this week? So this week they're playing Carolina at home. I think um in Detroit. I think, I think the line's like nine or something like that or eight. Ooh. For Detroit's the favorite. Um so I'm gonna say it's gonna be a blow. I'm gonna say they're gonna win by fourteen. Okay. So I'll go the other way for for go less just, than just to be the contrarian. Okay. I, I will say uh that the Lions will win, but it will be uh a margin of five or less. Okay, you're calling close one. All right. Okay, five or less. Okay, well, okay. we'll see if we can break we'll that see, tie. We'll and, see where uh, we get. 
and see where we go. Good stuff. Yeah. Hey, uh, there's a football team called the Indianapolis Colts in Indianapolis, and yes. that's where Andrew lives. So I'll have to wasn't, ask him about that. Wasn't there a guy called Manning or something who used to be there a quarterback was. there? There yeah. was, yeah. yeah. Mr. Yeah. Manning, I think he won. Didn't he win a Super Bowl with them? I believe he did. I believe Peyton yeah. Manning won a Super Bowl yeah. there in Indianapolis. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so we'll, we'll ask Andrew about that. Um, Andrew Whitehead is our guest, and he's coming into the Zoom room now to chat. And Andrew Whitehead is our guest today, and the book is American Idolatry. For those on YouTube, you'll be able to see the cover there. There it is, beautiful. There it is. And Andrew's going to talk about the book and so much more with us. Andrew, welcome. We're so glad you could spend some time with us. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I'm looking forward to it. So does this mean you're, you're, where is he, Rob? Where's this guy hanging out? You're in Indianapolis, right? I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Central Indiana, nice and flat, uh, gray clouds. That's it. Oh, is it? Yeah. Cults. Are we into the cults? Is that, uh, I mean, not cults. Cults. Yeah. 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 Both. Yeah. Um, yeah, not personally, you know, follow the local sports as, as I can, but, uh, they're, you know, they're rebuilding. So everybody's trying to, yeah, yeah, wait for the, the glory days to come. Hopefully. Listen, Rob and I are Lions fans. So like we, You know, we we lived in Windsor across the river from Detroit for years. So we, we know about rebuilding. We've been rebuilding since the day yeah. franchise started. Oh, that's right. <laughs> They're looking good this all, year. All though. my life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah. We'll take it. Well, look, and what about Baylor? You got anything to say about Baylor? Because they're into the sports, yeah? Uh, they are. Yeah, Baylor is definitely into sports. They've, you know, got to figure some stuff out of how to, you know, manage sports and Yes. You know, ethics and values yes. and all those things. I'll, I'll yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> okay, um, good. Good for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so they, there's some work to be done, but uh, yeah. hopefully we continue on that path. Yeah. It's a Baylor grad here. So, yep. Yeah. I'm a, I'm an alum. <laughs> yep. So, uh, listen, at, at w- this book, I really loved it. I, I couldn't put it down. I put mm-hmm. once. I was so thankful to, uh, Brazos and the folks are sending it over and, uh, shout out to them and to you for this incredible piece of work. Congratulations. Um, just to jump right in at the outset of the book, you note on uh, that on your own journey, you've come to believe that in order to faithfully follow the teachings and example of Jesus of Nazareth, you must work to disentangle Christianity from Christian nationalism. The two cannot coexist. You note that we must choose uh, to serve one or the other. Christian nationalism, you say, betrays the example set by Jesus in the Gospels. We agree. Christian nationalism leads to a practice uh, to practice various forms of idolatry, revealing a God or gods other than Jesus, trusting them for protection and for provision. And you also note that you're not alone in that, that you've had increasingly more conversations with people who are trying to fight back against this same issue. Um, hundreds of people, you write, whether it's in their congregations or in their daily lives or in their communities. I wonder if you can say more about why write this book now and the need for this conversation as so many try and navigate these sort of really tumultuous times uh, as it it just seems to be so prevalent. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and and I think in some ways the book at this moment is the culmination of a personal journey, a professional journey, um, and so you know professionally just studying religion in the U.S. and you know leaving grad school and, and graduating in 2012, and and you know various academic stops along the way, just trying to understand what. Americans believe why they believe it and how, you know, religious beliefs can influence how they see their social worlds and and how culture can shape religion as well. And, you know, as trying to explain some hot button issues, whether it's race or gender, sexuality, 
different things that America and and Americans have been, you know, arguing over, talking about politically for for decades. Uh, colleague, you know, Sam Perry and some others mm-hmm. and, and I, as we worked on this, started to see that the degree to which Americans believed, you know, this narrative that the U.S. was a Christian nation, is a Christian nation, should be a Christian nation, mm-hmm. the the more strongly they held that view, uh, the more likely they were to hold very particular views towards these hot button issues. And it really started to explain some of that polarization and um, mm-hmm. above and beyond their personal political beliefs or even their personal reli- religiosity. So there was something about wanting to see this particular expression of Christianity privileged in the public sphere mm-hmm. that was driving American attitudes, that was serving as a framework for how they saw their social world, the national identity, what it should be, what it should mean to be an American and what America mm-hmm. should be. Um, and then in my own personal journey, growing up uh, in, you know, white evangelicalism, a conservative part of the country and conservative uh, evangelical congregation um, and, and learning about the Christian faith there, you know, to love the Bible, love God, love your neighbor, all these values and beliefs. But then growing up and seeing how that faith interacted with the public sphere sometimes mm-hmm. and, raising questions, right? So, if we're pro-life, why does it mean, you know, this politically, but not this politically, right? Right, And starting to think through some of those issues and then learning a history um, of America, of the United States specifically, um, how Christianity was a part of some of the atrocities, um, maybe more than some, (laughs) and and trying to wrestle with that too. And so, that personal journey of what does it mean to be what does it mean to follow Christ, to love God and love our neighbor in the public sphere? Um, and then as a, as a sociologist, what does that mean for understanding how religion operates in the U.S.? And so, some of that culminated with the first book, Taking America Back for God, that I wrote with Sam, where we really mm-hmm. lay out what Christian nationalism is and, you know, in an accessible way, try to show what all it's associated with. And then in this book, you know, why write it now? Um you know, with the 2016 election and then the the next four years and then 2020 happening, um, you know, we were able to highlight and provide a framework, I think, for folks to understand how how Christian nationalism operates, what it is, yeah. and and hearing from folks that this helped them make sense of what they were seeing in their congregations and in, you know, around the Thanksgiving table, the stuff they yeah. were hearing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, hearing that and then with January 6th happening too. Wow, yeah. Um, you know, the the people at Brazos reached out and said, you know, would you consider writing for a, a Christian audience in this sense? And I was mm-hmm. hesitant right at first, but then I thought, um, well, perhaps, you know, I will take this step because it is, you know, a departure in a sense from that, the writing I've done in the past. But right. wanting to well, talk to Christians and say, hey, as a fellow Christian, here's what we know empirically. Here's the evidence Right. That social science has handed us. And now what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Not only for democracy, but for the Christian faith. So I think, uh, I, thank you for that, because I think that that's exactly like you mentioned, you, you mentioned the previous book you did with Sam, which is an academic work, right? Like you guys um, sort of really delve into that. This is very accessible for people, I find. Like, I think this book actually allows, because in many ways it is, um, you know, to use a word that gets used in evangelical circles a bit, I guess it's kind of testimony, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, there's a lot in here of you and of what you've, you've experienced. Um, so just to sort of touch on something a little more academic, I suppose, in a way, before we go too far, is to help our listeners, some who may 
question. What we use words, right? Like so, Christian yeah. nationalism. What what are we speaking about when you, when you write Christian nationalism? What are you talking about? And then specifically. Uh, the qualifier of white Christian nationalism, because you take great pains in the book to point out why that matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we're talking about Christian nationalism, um, what that means empirically, it's an empirically supported definition, I want to add. So we're not just kind of pulling it out of the air. I just Um, pulled this word out of my ass. Yeah, totally. totally. (laughs) And and folks that want to, you know, kind of push us to the side or not want to really engage the findings will say, well, nobody has a good definition. And every time I'm thinking, no, we do. We do. But but to say that allows them to try and ignore. So, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it's the desire for the fusion between a particular expression of Christianity and American civic life. So, Mm -hmm. the national identity, our sacred symbols, our policies to align according to uh, the dictates of this particular expression of Christianity and wanting the government to vigorously defend and and perpetuate this cultural framework of Christian nationalism in in our ideals and and how we function. And so the particular expression of Christianity is key because it isn't just the historic kind of orthodox beliefs like the creeds or that Jesus was the son of God, although it contains that. But it adds in what I like to think of as all this other cultural baggage mm-hmm. that in many ways is unique to the American experience, right? Due to our history and and different things that have happened. So, it adds this in and it becomes this mix and intertwined where in the minds of many Americans, and this is similar to myself growing up or those that I grew up around in those communities, where to be Christian essentially is to take on not only the historic beliefs, but then all this other cultural baggage as well. Yeah. And then we, it's hard to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. And so, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, again, it's the desire for a particular expression of Christianity to be privileged in public and civic life. Um, and so, this particular expression, the reason why in many ways it is a white Christian nationalism, is that one of the elements of this particular expression of Christianity, which is very conservative politically and religiously, um, is that it contains uh, this desire for strong ethno-racial boundaries around mm. national identity. Yeah. And this isn't something that folks you know, that we would survey or maybe even interview would explicitly say. But every time we ask the questions that we use to create this Christian nationalism scale, and none of those questions contain anything about race, but what Mm -hmm. we find is that depending on how you answer those questions, if you embrace Christian nationalism over and over, we're finding that when they're imagining a Christian nation, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. or imagining a white Christian nation, where it isn't as though, you know, we're talking about the skin color of a person that holds these views, Mm -hmm. but that Christian nationalism creates and perpetuates a society that benefits whiteness and white Mm -hmm. people as a group, as a whole. Not Mm -hmm. that every white person is richer than every racial minority or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But then when we look at the group level, the benefits of society tend to flow towards one group as a whole. And in the U.S. historically and even today, that those are white Americans. And so, white Christian nationalism is, is pointing to the fact that when we're talking about a Christian nation, it is this vision of a nation that is racialized, that mm-hmm. benefits white Americans over and above, as a whole, racial minorities. Mm, right. So, it's, it's um, yeah, understanding that and having a, a, a good 
wrapping your head around that, but also for us, I think too, and you talk about this in the book, is to um, you know ask ourselves, well, how can we make a difference about that, mm-hmm. and and not just have that understanding. And I think you encourage the reader in the book to to do that, and you call on the reader to consider what life might be like if we you know began begin to live our lives believing that even some small actions that we can consistently take now. Um, a, a practice of faithful resistance, if you will, can reverberate through our communities and our congregations and our denominations. And I just wanted to just quote a little bit from the book for our readers. Uh, Andrew writes, while we cannot go back and change the past to reduce the negative influence of Christian nationalism on our civic life today, we can act today in order to change tomorrow. I am convinced we must at the very least try. What you choose to do today to confront white Christian nationalism in your own life, the lives of those around you, or the systems of which we are all a part, matters. We can commit now to consistently making these choices, hoping that the seeds planted, however small, will someday grow and provide shade to the entire garden where all can flourish. Amen. Um, and that's, that's just so important. I, I wonder if you could say more about how, you know, these small actions or what people might see as seemingly insignificant conversations even can be so critically important. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, it's one of the parts of writing a book. One of the fun parts, there's a lot of parts that aren't as fun just because it <laughs> takes a while and it's hard and lonely. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, it, it brings around conversations like this. But one, one fun part of the book is, is being able to, you know, think of, different types of metaphors to, you know, illustrate some of what I'm talking about. And one of them is, you know, with movies from when I was a kid, like Back to the Future, mm-hmm. or more recently, the, uh, you know, the age or the Avengers and Endgame and all of that, where, you know, there's kind of this trope that if you go back in time, if you do too much, right, it'll just send all of the future careening off course, right? Like one little action could dramatically change the, you know, fabric of space and time. And partially, yes, it's it's a trope for those movies to give it weight. Um, and the next, and the next thing you know, you're married to your mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. She, she wants to, yeah. yeah she <laughs> Nonetheless, I apologize. I interrupted, but I had this thing flash before no, my Marty. Marty. Yeah, that's one of the weirdest parts of the rewatch of that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay, this is strange. This is getting we, creepy. We're getting quite creepy. A yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, this idea that we just fundamentally accept though, right. As we're watching it, like I never question that I I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. And, but we never think of the little things we could do now that they could have an effect, right. All they the could similarly really change what the future might hold. And so just trying to adopt that, um, because I think as I look at my own journey and I know the journeys of those that I've interacted with over the last number of years, where, you know, in the book too, I kind of highlight these different little moments where some of the the taken for grantedness of this idea of a Christian nation, that to be mm-hmm. American is to be Christian and to be Christian, then you're a good American. Mm-hmm. Little moments and interactions and, and times where that veil was kind of pierced for me. And so, you know, part of what I want to do and encourage folks is that as we serve as connections to people that may take this for granted. Mm-hmm. We raise questions with them in relationship firmly but gently. Um, we can help on that journey, provide, you know, something like a pebble in a shoe where, you know, it, it may not just, oh, they're ready to throw off the, the vestiges yeah. of Christian nationalism, but as they continue their journey, it, it just sticks in there. 
And then they have to think more about it. They have to do something about it. So I think those, inter, you know, interpersonal connections are key. And we, we can serve as these trusted others that folks will listen to. And, and maybe that we don't even have to try and argue with them about the rights and wrongs, but, but to raise questions that allow them space to then question themselves, things they took for granted. Um, so there's that part. And then I think too, uh, a fundamental insight of sociology is that it isn't just individuals' beliefs and values that shape society, but that systems and and how systems operate, you know, structure society for us. And so it isn't just changing individual hearts and minds that will change the systems of society, but those function according, you know, to different things. And so then too, for us to think about not only how we can serve the people in front of us or that are hurting, but then to see them as part of a community. And then what can we do to serve those entire communities? Mm. That is thinking at more organizational level, right. um, because that's a reality we have to face is that it isn't just that we get all Americans to let go of Christian nationalism, mm. but we need to change how our organizations operate, our congregations. Mm. Um, there's system level changes that have to be made too. But I guess the the desire is to see that what what we can do today, even the little things, we don't know how that might resonate, how that might change going forward. Um, and, you know, as as people of faith, and this is hard for me, mm-hmm. to do those things and maybe not see much <laughs> fruit That's right. or trust that maybe we don't see any fruit, but um, but to do it all the same. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Um, so there's this, you know, fact that, you know, there's white Christian nationalism, as we've, as we've mentioned today, largely a product of white Christianity in the United States. But that's not limited to the congregations or the people who make up these groups. Mm. Um, the cultural influence of white Christianity, um, you know, helps diffuse the tenets of Christian nationalism across the population. And, and you make the case that Americans, both in and outside of organized religion, uh, use Christian nationalism as a motivation and a justification for their actions, for, for what they're doing. I wonder if you could say more about this and how we, we kind of see it play out because like places like the insurrection on January 6th, for instance, was an example of that. But, mm. um, about maybe say more about how this kind of plays out across the board. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think you explained it really well where when we're talking about the cultural framework itself, it was created and perpetuated within white Christian cultural institutions. So those denominations and congregations, that's where it started. But empirically, excuse me, what we found is that it has diffused across the population. So when we survey American adults, even outside of white Christian congregations, denominations, institutions, there's a smaller number, but there's still a a, a minority, a significant minority who embrace Christian nationalism. Mm. And so in that sense, it isn't just tied to white Christianity institutionally, but that it exists outside of it. And that is important because as, um, some colleagues of mine found in another paper um, when they were looking at the social movement of the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. You had folks that were not religious, um, and you had folks that were really religious mm-hmm. and you know had even different political ideas of of what that means. Some were more libertarian, others were m- maybe a little less, but here they are finding themselves together in this movement. And Christian nationalism, an embrace of this idea that the U.S. is distinctively and should be distinctively Christian, mm-hmm. um, brought them together. And so, it provides something like a glue that can bring groups together that normally might differ on on other um, 
you know, other predictors, even religion. So, when we're looking at the insurrection, and this, we didn't survey anybody that was actually there, so I don't want to say that, you know, we we have direct survey or empirical evidence of those, but in reading um, the reports of that day, to watch the videos of that day, you see Proud Boys, which Mm -hmm. is a white nationalist violent movement, and not explicitly Christian, but they're all kneeling together saying a, a Christian prayer that you would hear right. anywhere. Um, and then you have folks that were explicitly religious and very, whether Pentecostal or Baptist or Catholic. Um, and then you have folks that were kind of spiritualist, you know, I'm thinking of the, the QAnon shaman, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah, yeah, all these yeah. folks are, are embracing various aspects and, and not the same. They're not all, you know, equal in, in how they see it, but various aspects of this idea that the U.S. is connected to, God and has this special right. place in God's plan. Um, right. and, yeah. and so that type of, that shows the power of this cultural framework that it can bring groups together, um, yeah. that, that hold this view in tandem. You know, uh, it's interesting and Rob will know what I'm talking about here, but we had a, we had a terror attack in this city two years ago mm-hmm. where a young man, 20 years old, went out and bought a truck for the purposes of coming to a neighborhood where there's a lot of Muslim families and he ran over a family killing, um, three generations, uh, a grandmother, her son, uh, her uh, granddaughter, and a seven-year-old boy survived, uh, but mom, dad, grandmother, ch- and uh, teenager died. And the, tri- the trial is on right now of this uh, this young man. And I was thinking about it when I read this part of the book and, and how you just described that answer, because he's not, um, from all the evidence that's coming out of the trial, he's not connected to any particular church. Mm-hmm. But he was inspired <laughs> by all these folks uh, who likewise are not necessarily part of a church, but write these white nationalist manifestos with mm-hmm. religious language. Yeah. And he put on, a, he took a white t-shirt and he spray painted a cross on the front and on the back before he got in the truck to go do what he did. Mm-hmm. So this is done with the symbiology yeah. of, of Christianity uh, you know, and, and so you see the effect, right? It's not a guy who's in a church every week, you know, banging a Bible, but he's got these ideas, you know, mm-hmm. and this is where they've come from. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's shocking. Yeah. Anyway, um, the other section of, but one of the sections of the book, I guess, that I really like was this business where you asked, you know, can I oppose Christian nationalism and still be, and you say, a Christian? Or a patriot. Um, you write, uh, the part you wrote about patriotism, I just loved it, posted on Facebook yesterday because mm-hmm. I just loved it. It says, being a patriot means we tell uh, the truth about our nation's history and we work toward a future in which everyone is able to participate. Doing so reveals artificial stories for what they are and creates space for truer ones. We can then fulfill unrealized aspirations, creating a space where all are able to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Christians can also, uh, should also wholeheartedly endorse this project. Only when we recognize the kingdom of God as superior to the nation can we speak to the truth, speak truth to power and maintain a prophetic stance, advocating for those on the margins. When we consider you right ourselves as part of the kingdom of God, we can acknowledge the politics and power in this world can be leveraged for the benefit of all and not just for those like us, whoever the us is, right? We can commit to demanding that the hurting, the sick, the powerless live without fear of violence, receive healing care for their wounds, and be able to exert influence on our communities and nation as bearers of the image of God, advocating for the rights of our neighbors, 
is the work of Christians. That sounds like patriotism to me. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a patriotism I can get behind. So can can you say more, um, Andrew, to our listeners about um, it's okay to be against Christian nationalism and still be a patriot and still be a Christian? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and this is, I think, where a lot of the rubber meets the road for folks, where you know, they they sense something's amiss, right, with this quest for power, and they see it kind of marginalizing folks or quieting different groups or even oppressing them. And and many, when made aware of that, would say, well, I don't want that. But there's still a fear and a sense of threat that they're going to lose something. Mm. Part of that is they feel as though they'll have to lose their faith because it's been so tightly intertwined um, to... Uh, talk about and against Christian nationalism, they feel as though it's talking about and against Christianity. Mm-hmm. And and so, in some sense, it's kind of like diffusing a bomb. Those wires get crossed, and mm-hmm. if you pull the wrong one, they feel it's all going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I've had folks, you know, even close family members that would say, well, you know, are you still a Christian? Because I speak out against Christian nationalism. So, it kind of illustrates how closely intertwined they are. And so, in that sense, I think you know, it helps to to point out and to think through that extra cultural baggage that gets handed to us. And, and speaking with and reading the experiences of folks outside of our context who are Christians mm. or who are minority groups within our context who are Christians, who can help us see um, the blind spots that we might have as more majority type groups who embrace Christianity. Um, and so, yeah, the goal is, is to help provide some of those resources to think through how to let go of some of those aspects that are harmful um, that have been added on. And, and we've been told and handed, you know, you have to do this if you're going to be a faithful Christian. Mm. Um, those, you know, you're going to hear and see those as 2024 election gets closer oh uh, here yeah. in the States, right? Like yeah. if you vote for the wrong group. How can you be a Christian? Or if you vote against X, there's no way that you could ever go to heaven. And and that is, I mean, this is an inside, <laughs> the religion, inside baseball type of thing, but that's, you know, heretical. That's <laughs> right. That's but right. It isn't as though those folks aren't also Christians. They are, mm-hmm. but they're putting extra, um, you know, boxes that you have to tick in order to faithfully live it out. And so, um, thinking through that. And then with the Patriot part, you know, we, Patriotism too, we can think about it as an affinity for our our fellow countrymen and women. Mm -hmm. But I think the goal then is not at the detriment of people who aren't from our country or at the detriment um, of, yeah, other countries or minorities um, and racial, religious, gender, sexual minorities, you know, all these different folks. Um, We can feel a sense of camaraderie and I think especially responsibility towards others who are a part of our you know, group, the historical accident of where we've been born. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, seeing that not in uh, the perspective of scarcity, but that there's an abundance, there's enough for all of us. And, you know, I think, you know, a line in the book that that resonates with me and has with others is that, you know, equality when you're used to privilege feels like discrimination. Mm -hmm. So for, for white Americans, especially, or white men like me, I've been privileged in in this country. It's there's never been a moment that if I went back in time, time travel is becoming a kind of a yeah, thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> podcast. But if I went back in time, that I would be you know targeted as a minority, right? Literally, yeah. no time yeah. in U.S. history. 
Um, but that's not true for a lot of other folks. Right. And so to think through that, that's privilege. It isn't something that I did myself, but that I still benefit from. And so thinking through, well, how can we bring other folks to be able to enjoy what I've always enjoyed or my group, right? Um, to enjoy those things as well doesn't mean that now I can't enjoy them, no. but, um, you know, it's not that I'm the only one now. Right. And right. if that cost me a little bit, wouldn't that be Christ-like to Amen. then say, I want to make room for others? Um, wouldn't that be patriotic to say Amen. that this country can serve and benefit others? Um, yep. So, those are the things that I was thinking through. And by the way, if, if we do get to go back in time since this has become a thing, <laughs> yeah. I think you and I should be able to enjoy one more day with a full head of hair. I know, right? Yeah. I don't know when you started. I, oh, I was I like back. 18 or 19. <laughs> yeah. So I'd have to go back to my teenage years, okay? But I but I do believe you. I I just wanted to tell you you have a you have a beautiful head. I love your hairdo, okay? Yeah, thank you. It takes a bit of time. <laughs> oh, I know. It's hard work. You know, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Andrew and I don't just jump out of bed. We don't jump out of bed like this, folks. We have to yeah. work out. Yeah, there's a lot of passion and energy. Oh, yeah, can... there's a lot. Yeah, sorry, right. Rob. You, no, oh, okay. Rob, Rob you okay. and your head of hair. Yeah, that's sorry. I can't, can't understand, guys. Um, that kind of what you're talking about leads me into my next question, really, about um, race um, and, you know, race and racial inequality certainly is so embedded in the American story and history. And there's a question that you pose, and I really love this little section of the book. You write, does Christianity have anything to offer regarding racial injustice? Mm. Um, and and you've been open to us, and you certainly are in the book, and honest about your upbringing in the evangelical world. And you wrote this about that. You said, I was completely ignorant of the ongoing effects of America's history of racial discrimination in housing, education, criminal justice, and health care. My actions implicitly supported the idea that the United States was indeed a meritocracy where all could create a better life for themselves, and God would bless them if they would only try hard enough. Right. Bootstraps, bootstraps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and Andrew, that really resonated with me because, um, you know, living in different countries, but there's this parallel because that's exactly what I thought. And Kevin and I have talked about yep. this many times in the podcast about first. Oh, no. Nations, people in Canada, the okay. first peoples that were here. So many of us were completely ignorant about the fact that we even had indigenous people in our own neighborhoods. I mean, you know, growing up with that privilege and those blinders on. And if they were a topic of conversation, it was usually in a very ignorant and harmful way. And those of us in the church right now, especially here in Canada, reconciling this truth because of our involvement in the residential schools in this country. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, we were absolutely blind to the suffering and trauma of First Nations and Indigenous peoples and the children that went to these schools. And the church participated in that. And yeah. we were going to the church at, at the same time it was it was taking part. So anyway, I just saw the similarity and I was, I was reading your book. So whether it's like Black Americans in the U.S. or First Nations people here in Canada, we have functioned with blinders on. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is if you could comment or say something about your thoughts on how organizations, you know, maybe like the church, can take steps toward righting some of these injustices because we are responsible for them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a big one. And that's something too I'm still learning and thinking through. Um, yeah. because you know, part of it is is recognizing whether here in the US it's uh you know black Americans and what they've been forced to endure 
um, from the beginning, even before the beginning, mm -hmm. um, or the indigenous populations that were here mm -hmm. um, and forced off land um, and, and genocide that was perpetuated against them, right. or yeah. uh, the boarding schools, right, that here yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. and in Canada um, yeah. that were a part of it, or uh, Asian immigrants and how they were treated, that it isn't mm. just a black-white issue, but it really is a racial and ethnic mm. minority and immigrant issue um, broadly. Um, and then to those we we brought here against their will. Um, and so I think part of it, one one part of it is is groups and organizations wrestling with it collectively, that history. Right. Part of it is we just need to know what that history is um, and tell the truth about it. And mm -hmm. so there are congregations doing that. There are organizations trying to equip and, and resource folks to do that. So I think that's a the big first step is is hearing the cries of injustice and acknowledging them and then taking ownership. Not that we necessarily were the ones that perpetuated it, but that it created a reality that we benefit from today. And so while we may not be personally responsible for bringing folks here or pushing folks off their land, we are responsible for the effects of that mm -hmm. on those communities today. And what can we do then um, to, again, bring flourishing and a common good to, to those communities? And, and so in the book, I try to provide some examples of congregations or people doing some of this work, not as a now, you know, go and do likewise, although maybe you can, you know, an individual or a congregation can do the same thing, but to hopefully ignite the imagination, because I know that folks are so creative and in the situations we find ourselves and the needs that surround us are different for different groups. That some of that, um, you know, the expressions of confronting and opposing Christian nationalism, reckoning with racial inequality, whatever that might look like, or mm -hmm. um, the inequality that other groups have faced in your context or in your neighborhoods, communities. What's what's exciting to me is to see that creativity come out, but hopefully to to show the call for for Christ followers um, and any American, but again, speaking directly, Canadians to too. Yeah, and Canadians do, but um, to to fellow Christ followers, that there's a history here, and we didn't get here accidentally, right? Um, and right. that it still resonates today, and and to recognize that fact that the the ripples are still with us, and so what can we do to take ownership? Um, yeah. I heard, you know, this was somebody talking about in, in terms of of. Uh, you know, disability and, and structural impediments to uh, equality for disabled Americans. They talked about, let's say that you were gifted um, from, you know, maybe a family member, grandparent, or, you know, great uncle or something, a hotel. And now you're the owner of the hotel. You get to benefit from what he built um, and, and run the hotel. But, you know, when he built it, there were only steps. There weren't any um, ramps or ways for folks to get in there. And so, while you didn't necessarily build the hotel and make it um, so that disabled folks, you know, couldn't get in, now that you own it, you're responsible for those effects. And so, right. morally, you know, ethically, to be a person of justice, you would want to build a ramp so they can access it. Yeah. And in that same way, that same idea, we may not have built this hotel, but we're responsible for it now. And so, what can we do? To, to create more equality, um, to create access, um, to reckon with some of the, the ripples and the effects of injustice uh, on a lot of these groups uh, in the past. And, and exactly how to do that, I think, um, is creativity in the moment, meeting 
you know, the place that, that folks are, but I'm excited to hear some of those stories. And you I was know, appreciative to hear and read some of those stories because oftentimes yeah. we find in 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 our parishes or churches wherever we are, it's there. There's the desire to do something, but it stops when everybody looks at each other and says, "Well, yeah. I don't even know where to start." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. to have something there as an yeah. example, yeah, is, is start huge. somewhere, yeah. right? These groups yeah. I talked with, it was like literally just do baby something. steps. Yeah, yeah. And I, and and I think you know, like. um I like what you're saying because, I mean, there's a difference between ignorance and willful ignorance, right? Like, it's one right. thing to not know, but once you learn it, <laughs> then what do you do? And, uh, you know, to reach back to last season, Rob, we had, uh, just to commend to your reading too, Andrew, Patty Krawak, who's a Canadian author. She's, um, uh, she's, uh, Anna Nishabe, and her book is called Becoming Kin. Mm. And the, in the subtitle, it says, it's a guide to unforgetting. You know, yeah. the business of unforgetting the histories that we haven't told, right? And and I think that that becomes such an important part of this, too. But yeah, that part of your book is incredible. Another another piece of the book is when you write about um, power as an idol. Um, and I couldn't help but think of some of what we're seeing right now uh, when your former clown of a president, uh, uh, Donald Trump, is, I don't know, 100 times indicted or whatever. And right now, currently, as we speak, is is undergoing this this trial because he's been found to have defrauded uh, uh, the state of New York. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, images every day. And it seems like you know, the news channels there are hell-bent on making sure he gets the attention he needs for the next election. But anyway, I get off of that. Um, <laughs> there's a, there's a, there are a lot of stories in history you write about a very high-profile evangelist encouraging Christians um, to be active in order to take the nation in a particular direction. In fact, we see it playing out, as I said now, and I'm going to just do a screen share. For those who are listening to this and not watching it, I'll describe these images. There are two in particular. Uh, this one here, uh, this first image, is a fake courtroom sketch, uh, which Trump reposted on his own social media platform um, from his current frog case. And we have Trump and a white Jesus, uh, who appears to be dressed like Obi-Wan Kenobi, interestingly. Um, and he's a bit... He's a big dude too. Um, big. He's yeah. a big dude. Like I'm like that is a Jack Jesus That's right a big there. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> a, but, lots uh, of hair. Yeah, it's he's got lots of hair. Not like yeah. me or Andrew here. Yeah. I tell you. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the comment above this uh, white Jesus, along with uh, with uh, Trump, uh, is that this is the most accurate court sketch of all time. The the perpetuator of this image says because nobody could have made it this far alone. The implication being that. Uh, Trump's cause is Jesus's cause. The second image is from his Bedminster, believe it or not, is hanging in his Bedminster golf club. And, uh, it's, uh, it's an image of, uh, of Trump carrying a cross uh, draped in an American flag. Uh, and included is an inscription from Psalm 112. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. Um, I, I mean, this is phenomenal. They misspelled righteous, I think. Yeah, I know. Yeah, they did. They also misspelled <laughs> yeah, righteous. Yes. Right. They spelled right. Yeah, just, O-U-S, right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so, and, and and 
even though it's misspelled, it's hanging on the wall at Bedminster, right? Yeah. Of course, of course yeah. it is. Um, but these images, I mean, you know, we laugh at them because it's so ridiculous on one side. On the other side, though, and as you pointed out, you see a lot of this in the January 6th stuff as well. Mm -hmm. But this points to this notion, this idol of power, right? That, that you know, there's, there's, you know, that Jesus is, has, or uh, pardon me, pardon me, forgive me, Lord, uh, that <laughs> Trump, Trump is being portrayed as as the messiah you know yeah. as as this savior uh, that's come to deliver to people um which is blasphemous beyond you know it's it's just crazy but this this notion of power and the way that the religious institution particularly as it relates to evangelism in the united states and many very outspoken evangelists uh, mm -hmm. franklin graham right now for instance and others who seem to you know power is such a big idol i wonder if you can say more but i can get your reaction to these beautiful Beautiful works of art. Yeah, there's been some really wild um, drawings, paintings. Uh, John, I think it's McNaughton. He's one that, you know, has created a lot of these in the last four years as well. Or I guess now it's been seven years since 2016. But yeah, I think, you know, a key part of the cultural framework of Christian nationalism is is symbols and narratives. And so there is power in, in the symbols we use and how we pair them together and the narratives we tell. And um, you know, I have colleagues that write about Christian nationalism as a deep story, this, you know, feeling and narrative in these ideas of who we are, what we're all about and where we're going. And so when we see the cross and the flag intertwined, those symbols represent something very foundational and fundamental to us in our identities. And they tell us again about who we are and, and what we're all about. And so I think, you know, there isn't anything novel about Trump you know, trading on on Christian nationalism or rhetoric about a Christian nation. This is something that presidents on both part, you know, sides of the aisle in different ways. It isn't exactly the same, um, but we'll use this type of rhetoric, and especially uh, for Republican presidents, since Ronald Reagan has mm -hmm. really been a key part. Um, and so, there's nothing new there. I think what what was new about Trump, and that really highlights the idol of power is that he really made no move to try and show that he is personally religious or that Christianity is in any way uh, personal to him or that he's trying to be moral or virtuous in any you know way that Christians would would understand across the you know the different expressions of Christianity in the US. And so even then for many American Christians um, still supporting him it showed that it, it wasn't about the the virtuosity um, of the person in power, but that this person in power would give us access to power, mm -hmm. and that's what it was all about. Um, because one really you know dramatic statistic um, was you know during the the Clinton years and thereafter the rhetoric and 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 polling you know asking folks you know does a leader have to be um, ethical you know, and, and have virtue to be able to hold, hold that office. And around 70% of white evangelicals said yes, mm -hmm. right? And thinking about the Clinton years and, yeah. and the arguments that were being made, you know, right. whatever he did, it wasn't virtuous. And so that should be why he leaves office. Then when that same question was asked during the Trump era, it was a complete flip. Right. For white evangelicals, 30% said you have to be ethical and virtuous. 70% said it doesn't matter. And so, in that sense, I think it lays bare. It isn't that we need the right people in power, although you'll hear that rhetoric. Um, the right people are those that are going to give us access to power and political privilege 
um, on the the things that we feel are important, our quote unquote moral issues, right? Um, that tend to benefit our group, um, and so I think that's where power as an idol plays plays a key role. And as Trump kind of lays that bare for us, so you get those Supreme Court nominations that change the trajectory of. Right. You talk about how small actions change. You know, so Roe Roe v. Wade gets overturned. You know, is it is it Brown versus the Board of Education next? Like, at at what point does it become? Yeah. You know, or for businesses, corporations, or, yeah. you know, capitalism and this yeah. view of capital, what that means, you know, that's been tied up to be a, a good Christian too, even yeah. though there yeah. are many Christians yeah. <laughs> um, who yeah. would, would yeah. you know, level some, some very <laughs> you know, distinct, um, you know, uh, critiques of capitalism. Well, you know, Jesus yeah. was all, was all, was all about big business. Jesus, he was big. Yeah, on right. the big business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm um, just some of that cultural baggage that just gets taken yeah. for granted. But yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Just one final question, if we could, Andrew. Um, like many evangelicals, you went on a couple of mission trips when you were in high school, right? I remember you read. I read a little bit about that. You went to Lima, Peru. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about that? You talk about you know you're preparing yourself about wanting to be a conduit for the goodness of God to all people mm-hmm. that you were going down to spend time with. And that's really the basic crux of any mission trip, right? It's this idea that, well, I have something because I'm a follower of Jesus and it's my mm-hmm. my call or or whatever it is to share that, to give that to someone that's not mm-hmm. and, and to pass that on. Yet you find found out, as many have done on, on many of these trips, that what actually happened was that the people you went to evangelize ended up teaching you something. Mm. And and I find, you know, on a micro level, I find that same understanding just in our church communities, because like, if I were to ask maybe 10 people in my parish, you know, why do you want people to come to our church? Their response would be something like, well, they could get to know us and, and they could get to know Jesus. Um, that's probably what they'd say. But I often wonder, what would it be like to reverse that? To answer that question of why I want people to come to my community by saying, well, because those people might have something to say to me, mm. or might have something to, to show me. And you're right about this, this Christian uh, fear of immigrants and refugees, anyone that's not like us. And, and that's all kind of the crux of that, isn't it? And that pushback against immigration. Um, can you talk about how Christian nationalism plays into that fear of how we might think about, you know, what it is to listen to those who we see as the other? Because it's this whole thing of not wanting, um, you know, immigrants to come is all based on on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, fear and sense of threat. Mm. Um, and this is operating at kind of a, a group level and a sense that there's nothing unique about Christians or Americans where fear yeah. and threat is powerful, right? Any right. group. Right. This is like a sociological reality that fear and sense of threat are so powerful in defining who we are by showing us who we're not. So the quicker we know who they are, that helps us define who we are. So it creates these boundaries and boundaries are powerful um, and it creates motivation to act. Um, and a lot of times, too, as I try to to lay out in the book, that fear and sense of threat revolve around feeling as though they're, they are coming for our power or privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when we're thinking about xenophobia and immigration, where the empirical evidence is clear, American Christians are are mo are you know more opposed <laughs> to want to serve welcome immigrants. They're more likely to hold negative views of immigrants and refugees, even refugees that. Are Christian or have a high likelihood of being fellow Christians, there's still this desire to, to keep them away. Um, and so fear and sense of threat, the reality of it 
um, the power of it has been used over and over by political operatives and those with power to rally and motivate the masses essentially to support them, bring them back into power. And I think that's had a real uh, negative influence on the American public on American Christians. I think mm -hmm. what they've been handed, um, you know, has really been a disservice to them being able to faithfully live out what Jesus teaches and what is a theme throughout the Christian scriptures, mm -hmm. um, whether it's before, you know, Jesus um, or after, um, you know, as the stories in the Bible of God interacting with humans, um, he's constantly talking about uh, immigrants and refugees and the oppressed and the poor and the widow and all of these folks that tend to get the short shrift of political power and influence. And so, you know, there's a lot wrapped up in it, um, but that's been a key narrative of it. And, and Christian nationalism, um, because it's focused on power, is more than willing to draw those boundary lines, use sense of threat and fear um, to have folks only focused on protecting, quote unquote, us and keeping them at bay. And that extrapolates to, to immigrants and refugees and those that they view you know, in some way or other threaten um, what they hold dear and what they see as um, of the utmost importance. And, you know, I I, I have to say that I, I think this is the critical part of all this too, because, and it has an effect here. I mean, um, in Canada, I mean, I feel like sometimes there's a time delay, uh, you know, because what we're hearing in the body politic here now in Canada is very similar to the rise of Trump in 2016. Mm. So there's this increased rhetoric of fear, fear of of um, the gay agenda of, mm. uh, you know, of the, the, the you know, uh, pronouns and uh, all this stuff, you know, and, and it's, you know, our, one of our former prime ministers, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, father of the current prime minister, was once uh, at a state dinner with Richard Nixon. Mm. And he said, you know, living next to the United States is like sleeping next to, to an elephant. Um, it's a beautiful beast, but you feel it's every grunt and twitch and, uh, and, uh, and it's, uh, and so I think that, you know, as it is for listeners we have in this country on this side, I think the book you've written is really critically important because I, I think I fear for, for where we're headed because I think people are buying into the divisiveness and the rhetoric. It's being used as a lever to, to leverage votes from a certain part of the population. Yeah which is all too happy to jump on this sort of white nationalist agenda, uh, which is generally anti-gay, anti-immigrant, anti-anything uh, that's not white, anti-anything uh, that's not Christian, certainly. Um, and we saw here in our own city, like I said, with the terror attack we had and a, and a, a trial that's unfolding right now, just how very dangerous uh, all of that rhetoric is. So um, it, uh, just a terrific book, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. American idolatry, idolatry, how Christian nationalism betrays the gospel and threatens the church. And there it is there. Andrew Whitehead's been our guest today. We really appreciate uh, your work and taking the time. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for the invitation, the conversation, for reading the book, sharing about it. It, it means the world. So uh, thank you so much. And again, our thanks to Andrew for giving us the time. I know he's a busy guy and uh, we were so happy you could sit with us for an hour and talk about this wonderful book. This was a really good read. And in, awesome. you said off the top, I think, Kevin, this is accessible, right? Yeah. Like this is a book that every, you know, Christian in our, in our, in, if we're in your ear today, pick this up. 
Yeah, this is important and uh, and a good read. So thanks to Andrew. American Idolatry is the book. Thanks, buddy. That was great. Our fourth episode is uh, is uh, finished. So we'll look in the to can, as they say, it's okay. in the can, in the can, sealed yes. up. Yep. Thank you to our uh, sponsors again, to A. Miller George Funeral Home, where each life is celebrated and their sister company, Cremation London Middlesex, both family owned and operated to the Diocese of Huron, a community where families and individuals from Windsor to Owen Sound, Grand Bend to Port Rowan come together to worship and to serve and to Molly Maid, make your home a healthy haven. Call Molly Maid London today. Yes. Until we meet again, my friends, remember, look both ways. Before you cross the street, I will. Thank you for listening. Our hosts are Kevin George and Rob Henderson. Our producer and composer is myself, Ian, with original artwork done by Elizabeth Dodman. If you have any questions or want to know where to find us, tweet us at Vickers Crossing or find us on Facebook at The Vickers Crossing. If you have any other questions about anything heard on this podcast, leave us a comment or look in the description to find out more. Thanks. 